0: Today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11b, and it can be found on page 968 in your Pew Bible. Page 968 in your Pew Bible. The point is this. you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay, um... We have a microphone going? Okay, good. So it's good to see you all this morning. And uh, before I get going here, I want to just uh, do something uh, for Andy Brandt. Uh, Andy is our elder chair. I'm always having to do stuff for him. I mean, that's the thing, you know. And, uh, but Andy couldn't be here this morning. He's out of town, actually. And uh, so he wanted me uh, to pass on a note uh, to you all. And so this is, this is the note, this is what he wrote. He says, as you may be aware, the elders have been in a process of study and conversation around the topic of women's flourishing here at Calvary. And he writes, there are some specific steps and commitments that we as a board want to take in light of this, and we want to share these with you. So you'll receive an email later this week that outlines these steps and commitments. If after reading this email, you have any questions you'd like to discuss with us, please reach out to us at elders at CalvaryMemorial.com, and we'd be happy to set up a time to talk. Thanks to all of you who have been praying for us and engaging with us over these last several months. We are so thankful to God for all of you. So be watching your email uh, this coming week, and uh, an email coming from, I, don't, I think it might come from Andy or it might come from the elders or from Calvary, but just be watching for that, and Andy wants to give an update on some of the things that the board has been studying and learning about this. So, anyway there's that. Well, good morning and welcome to all of you. And we're continuing on in our sermon series in 2 Corinthians, Yet Always Rejoicing. And for the past number of weeks, we've been in chapters eight and nine, focusing on the relief effort that Paul is organizing for the poor in Jerusalem. And by way of reminder, for those of you maybe who have not been with us the past weeks, which then the case it wouldn't be a reminder, it would be new, but by way of reminder, maybe for those of you who haven't been paying attention, the context of 2 Corinthians 8-9 through 9 is an empire-wide famine in the Roman Empire that's uniquely affecting the poor in Jerusalem. And so Paul, who's doing ministry in Macedonia and Achaia, is taking up a collection among the churches where he's working to take back to the poor in Jerusalem. So he's writing to the Corinthians in chapters 8 and nine to prepare the Corinthians for his upcoming visit, because he's going to come, he's going to collect the relief gift that the Corinthians have committed, and then he's going to take that back to Jerusalem. So the sermons the past few weeks, though, haven't been focused specifically on the subjects of money and giving. I' kind of hitting that in a tangential way. But this week, we're going to zero in again on the topic of giving. And uh, this passage that we have here before us, I think, is a pretty thick cut of steak. And there's a lot that we could focus on here. And as I was thinking about how to preach this passage, I went back and forth, back and forth about whether to preach one sermon from this text or to preach two sermons, break it up and preach two sermons. And after praying about it a bit, I've decided I'm going to do two sermons, but I'm going to do them both this morning. So this morning, you're getting two you're getting two sermons for the price of one. There we go. That's the spirit. That's the spirit. So this first sermon's uh, going to focus exclusively on verse seven. There's kind of three clauses in verse seven. We're going to look at three those three clauses and have three points of application. The second sermon is going, or this first sermon is going to be a bit of a review. So it's going to touch on some things that we've already talked about before. So I didn't feel like we needed to spend an entire morning on it. The second sermon is going to encompass this whole passage. And it has a single point related to the problem of the prosperity gospel. So I want to hit that in this second sermon. So three sermons or three points for the first sermon. One point for the second sermon. I promise to get us out of here on time. And if two sermons sound like too much, then you can just think of this as one sermon with four points, right? So just kind of think about a four-point sermon. All right but all related to the subject of giving. So let's jump right into our uh, first sermon here from 9-7. We're going to just focus here on 9-7 for a bit. And here's the first point that I want to draw from 9-7. We should give to relief efforts as the Lord leads. This is, like I said, something we've talked about in the past. But here in verse 7, Paul says that each person should give... As he has decided in his heart to give. So, as Paul is coming to collect the gift that the Corinthians have promised, generally as a congregation, he doesn't insist on a fixed amount that they have to give. He doesn't ask for a 10% contribution from everybody. He doesn't establish some set dollar amount that the Corinthians individually or even collectively have to give to this relief effort. This is a point that was made, that I made back in chapter 8, verse 8, where Paul says that participation in the relief effort is not a command. He's not commanding them to participate in this relief effort. And Paul's point of application here then carries over straight into our context. Because each of us have different life callings. We have different responsibilities that we have to take care of. We have different needs related to our families or beyond, And we're not all called to give equally to relief efforts, nor are we called to give to every relief effort that we come across. Each person has to decide for himself or herself how much to give. We have to decide in our hearts what to give. And I would add here, and what I think is implicit in Paul's comment, is that we follow our hearts Insofar as our hearts have been filled up with the Spirit of God. Which is to say, we should give as the Lord directs our hearts. Not simply as we, in isolation from the Lord, direct our hearts. Our relief giving should not be fundamentally driven by the needs that we encounter. Nor should it be driven by our own natural inclinations but by the leading of the Spirit in our heart. And the Spirit of Jesus is not going to ask us to give equally to every need that we come across or to give to every need that we come across, but the Spirit of Jesus will ask us to give more than we would naturally be inclined to give. So when it comes to relief giving, submit yourself to the Lord, yield yourself to his guidance, and then give as he directs your heart to give. So that's the first point of application, give as the Lord leads. Here's the second point, don't give out of guilt. So in verse seven, our second clause in this verse, Paul says that we shouldn't give reluctantly or under compulsion. In other words, we shouldn't give out of a sense of guilty obligation. So if you're contributing to some relief effort or some other financial need because you feel guilty, You just keep your money. As I pointed out a few weeks ago, all of our gifts are ultimately gifts to the Lord. The cup of cold water that we give to the poor and to the thirsty is a cup of cold water to the Lord. And the Lord is simply not interested in our gifts of guilt, not financially nor in any other area of our lives. My point here is not that feeling guilty is always wrong. Guilt is a legitimate feeling in many circumstances. And the whole basis of the Christian life requires us to come to very real terms with the guilt that we have before God because of our sin. That's why we need the gospel. It's why we need forgiveness. Well, my point is that guilt is never a proper or sustainable fuel to energize our Christian lives. The practices of the Christian life. It's guilt, it just simply doesn't work over the long haul. I have at various points, maybe this can be true for some of you as well. Maybe it's true for you right now, in fact. But I have at various points, especially in the past, tried to sustain my, the practices of my Christian life through guilt. And you can guilt yourself into reading the Bible. Guilt yourself into praying. You can guilt yourself into giving guilt yourself into witnessing to your neighbor, or any other laudable act of Christianity. And that does work for a little bit. But you will never be able to sustain genuine Christian practices through guilt. And that's why Paul is not using it here. He's not trying to guilt the Corinthians into participating in this relief effort, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So he's saying, point one, that we should give as the Lord leads, and that we shouldn't give, point two, out of guilt, which leads to the third point of our sermon. See, we're almost done with this first sermon, and we were just moving right through it here, so if you were panicking, don't panic, which leads to the third point of here of our first sermon, we should be cheerful. Not be cheerful, we're almost done with the third point of the sermon, but we should be cheerful As a giver. At the end of verse 7, Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. And I used to interpret this verse as teaching that I should give cheerfully. I should make my offerings to the Lord, or when I give, I should do so cheerfully. And that's true, but that's not quite what Paul is saying here in this verse. Paul's focus here is not on the act of giving, but on the person. Who's giving? His concern is not that the act of giving should be done cheerfully. His concern is that the person giving should be cheerful. So now picture in your mind the ideal giver. Right? So just, I don't know who you, I don't know who comes to your mind. Maybe it's a real person, maybe it's a pretend person, but this ideal giver. Now picture them doing something besides giving. Maybe they're out mowing their lawn. Maybe they're driving to work. Maybe they're doing the dishes at home. Whatever it might be, but they're doing something beyond giving. Now, what do you picture them like doing those things? What is this ideal giver like when they're driving to work? What is this ideal giver like when they're mowing their lawn? What is this ideal giver like when they're doing the dishes? Is he angry angry? Is she guilt-ridden? Is he dour? God says the ideal giver is not angry, guilt-ridden, dutiful, or even disciplined, certainly not legalistic. The ideal giver is cheerful. The ideal giver is a cheerful person. The ideal giver is full of the joy of the Lord and as a consequence, gives out of the abundance of that joy. So Paul's point is that joy should precede and fuel our giving. So one of my favorite verses in recent years comes from Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength for every practice of the Christian life, including the strength, the practice of giving. So listen, if you're not generally a cheerful person living in the joy of the Lord, you're not going to be a cheerful giver. Trying to be a cheerful giver when you're not a cheerful person is getting the cart before the horse. We have to be joyful or cheerful in the Lord in order to be cheerful about the gifts that we're giving. Which takes us back to the beginning of chapter 8 where Paul references the Macedonians who were experiencing, he says, extreme poverty and, at the same time, an abundance of joy. Joy doesn't come from our worldly abundance or our worldly blessings, nor does it come from the act of giving itself. Joy comes from Jesus, who is the living, personal joy of the Father Given to us. So the Macedonians could be cheerful, even in the midst of their extreme poverty, because they were already living with the joy of the Lord that is Jesus. So they could be cheerful givers because they were cheerful. So if you find yourself, if you find that you struggle to give cheerfully, no judgment, don't fall into guilt, don't castigate yourself. Living with joy is hard work. I think it's one of the hardest works of the Christian life, and they're not any quick fix. There's no quick fixes to living a life of true Christian joy. But it is possible, the Macedonians are an example of it, it is possible, even if hard, to know and experience the joy of Jesus even when the world around you is falling apart. And that's the hope of the gospel. The way to joy is to keep coming back to the grace of God, to the love of Jesus and his care for us. All right, so that's the first sermon from verse 7 of chapter 9. Give as the Lord leads. Don't give out of guilt. Be a cheerful person. Now, on to the second sermon. The second sermon only has one point. I'm going to slow down just a little bit here so we can marinate uh, in this second sermon. Looking at this whole passage, this passage before us, especially verse 6, how it starts, but this whole passage is often used by prosperity teachers to claim, maybe you're familiar with the term prosperity gospel or prosperity teachers. I've, I've mentioned it a few times throughout 2 Corinthians. But prosperity teachers claim that if we give our money to God in faith, then he will give even more money back to us. All right? And so this here in verse 6 is sort of kind of a proof text that a prosperity preacher would use. Look at verse 6. If we sow sparingly, we will also reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we will reap Bountifully. So, the prosperity argument goes if you give your money freely and cheerfully and bountifully to God in true faith, not under compulsion, then God will give your money back to you in even more bountiful measures. So, prosperity teachers will tell you that if you're barely making ends meet financially, living hand to mouth, you're falling behind each month, then maybe the problem is that you are sowing sparingly to the Lord's work. So they'll tell you that you should dig a bit deeper and sow bountifully to the Lord's work. And then the Lord will add his blessing to your money and then he will give it back to you just as Jesus said, as a larger cupful, pressed down, shaken together and running over. And maybe you've seen on TV, but we have prosperity teachers on TV who showcase their airplanes and their mansions and their Rolex watches of evidence that their teaching works. They have huge followings. And they've given bountifully to God, and behold, God has given them a yacht. I mean, it's just perfect. It just works out beautifully. And he will do the same for you if you also give bountifully to the Lord. And it turns out, conveniently for the prosperity teachers, that giving your money to the Lord's work means giving your money to the prosperity teacher, which might be why it's working so well for them. And that sort of teaching has led many people astray. The prosperity teacher gets rich, and the Christian gets disillusioned When they don't get back the cup full of money pressed down and running over. And maybe some of you have been parts of Christian traditions like that or that have dabbled a bit and trafficked in the prosperity gospel. Now the prosperity gospel is wrong and this passage is going to help us see why. But before we get to that, I want to show how some anti-prosperity gospel preachers try to correct this false teaching but actually end up overcorrecting it now some anti-prosperity teachers they see the damage done by the prosperity gospel this promise that if you give money to God God's going to give more money back to you and they point out rightly that the harvest that God promises us is grace and good works and righteousness. So look here at verses 8 and 10. God is able to make all grace abound so that you may abound in every good work. And then in verse 10, God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. And the point that they make is that when we give money to God, The harvest we reap in return is not money, but a deeper and richer spiritual life in Christ. So, if we give money to the Lord's work, we might not get money back, but we're going to grow stronger in grace, become more able to do good works, and we're going to grow in our personal righteousness. Now, it is certainly true that we reap a deeper spiritual life when we surrender ourselves to God including surrendering our money and our finances to God. And what the anti-prosperity teachers are saying is certainly closer to what Paul means than what the prosperity teachers are saying. But it's still not quite what Paul means. And to help clarify this passage, I want to focus on this word righteousness that Paul first mentions here in verse 9. verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112, verse 9. He, meaning God, has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And of course, this is an appropriate verse for Paul to be using here in this context. Paul is raising money for the poor in Jerusalem. And he's showing from Scripture, from the Psalms, That God's heart is for the poor. And just as God has given freely to the poor, so too should the Corinthians. But then Paul includes this next line of the psalm. His righteousness endures forever. What does God's righteousness have to do with helping the poor? Now when you hear the term righteousness, what comes to your mind? You might be inclined to think about righteousness as maybe a synonym for morality or integrity or perhaps rule following or integrity of character. And all of that's not untrue. But That's not really fully what the term means in the Old Testament context, especially in the context of the Psalms that Paul is quoting from. The term righteousness is not a term that describes my character independent of my relationship with others, but is a term that describes how I relate to others, particularly those under my care or otherwise under my power. So now we can see a good example. There's lots of places we could go in the Old Testament to see good examples of this. But we can see a good example of this in Job chapter 29. So... Got your Bible with you. Turn back to Job chapter 29. I don't often have us turning to other passages of Scripture, but I want to just spend a moment here in Job 29. So turn there, and we can start in verse 7. We're here in Job 29 to get a picture of what righteousness is in the Old Testament. right? So 435, page 435 in your pew Bible, if if that helps you. Uh, 29, we're going to start with verse 7 to start with verse 7. So Job, if you know the book of Job, Job's going through a really hard time, right? He used to be a, uh, a man of prominence and a man of power, a man of esteem, and now he's not anymore. Things have gone really bad for him. And so we're picking up here in verse 7 when Job is talking about how his life used to be, right? So verse 7 uh, through 11, he says, Used to be... Then when I went out to the gate of the city, when I prepared my seat in the square, the young men saw me and withdrew, and the aged rose and stood. It's talking about how they would give deference to him. Right? So Job got a lot of deference. The princes refrained from talking and laid their hands on the mouth. Everyone got quiet because Job was here. We're going to listen to what Job has to say. The voices of the nobles was hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. When the ear heard it, It called me blessed when the eyes saw it approved. And so Job is pointing out that when he used to walk into the room, to the city gate, so to speak, where all the important people would gather, they would get quiet to hear what Job had to say. He was the man. He was the leading man of the city in which he lived. And he's saying that he used to be the leading man of the city because, and then we look at verses 12 through 14, because I delivered the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless, who had none to help him. The blessings of him who was about to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And then look here at verse 14. He says, I put on righteousness, and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban." Then he goes on to talk about here in verses 15 through 17 what it was like for him to put on righteousness. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey from his teeth. So what Job is saying is that when I would encounter people in distress or in need, I clothed myself in righteousness and I came to their aid and I delivered them. And I took care of the poor. I took care of the widow. I took care of the needy. I took care of those who were in need. Which is to say, Job's righteousness manifested itself in taking care of the poor and the abused and those who were in distress. It meant delivering the persecuted from the fangs of the wicked. And that's what it meant to be righteous in the Old Testament doesn't simply mean that one obeyed the law or followed all the rules. It meant that one acted with loving regard for the down and the out and came to their aid, even to the extent of delivering the persecuted from the power of the wicked who were oppressing them. Now I should say, I hear a word to all my Old Testament scholars and my theology students, perhaps those of you who are studying at Moody, uh, a word here, Because there's a lot of debate on this term righteousness. The rest of you can listen in. Maybe this is just here for my uh, theology students. But there's a technical debate in Old Testament scholarship about the meaning of this term righteousness. I want to maybe just talk a little bit about this because it's going to help clarify even more what the point of righteousness is. Some say that righteousness refers to rule keeping adhering to the norm that the law prescribes. Others say that it's primarily a relational term. Now, these two options, I think, are a false alternative because righteousness contains both ideas. The Hebrew term for righteousness, we read throughout the Old Testament, is very often set in parallel with the Hebrew terms for salvation and for deliverance. So we read something like the psalmist saying, answer me, O Lord, in your righteousness, deliver me with your salvation. And it most typically occurs in asymmetrical relationships with righteousness passing from the more powerful to the less powerful. So we often read that kings and princes and judges grant righteousness to their subjects, but we never read about their subjects granting righteousness to their rulers. So in the same way, we often read about how God gives righteousness to humans or acts with righteousness towards humans, but we never read, as far as I'm aware, and I've looked, about humans giving righteousness to God or acting with righteousness toward God, which explains why in the book of Job, Elihu so is the only one of Job's friends who doesn't get rebuked by Job for speaking incorrectly about God, Elihu says to Job, if you are righteous, what do you give to God? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness only affects other humans and your righteousness only other people. God does not stand in need of Job's righteousness or Job's deliverance. Job's righteousness is only for other people, particularly those who are in need. So righteousness in the Old Testament is similar to how the term social justice works in our context. I don't act with social justice towards the rich and the privileged, but towards the down and the out because social justice as a category of justice isn't for the rich and privileged. It's the same with righteousness. God asks me, to act with righteousness or to give righteousness to those in need. And this is all part of the golden chain of discipleship that we've talked about through 2 Corinthians. I get righteousness from God, his help, his aid, his deliverance, his salvation, and I in turn give righteousness to others. So when the Old Testament says that God judges or rewards a person, according to his righteousness or her righteousness, that doesn't mean he's judging or rewarding a person according to his general morality or rule following, but according to how that person has treated those who stand in need, which is exactly what we see in Matthew 25, which is Jesus' account of the coming judgment on the last day. It's the sheep and goats judgment. And Jesus, in that account, identifies the sheep as righteous, precisely because they have taken care of those who are in need. All of which is to say, righteousness is not a term that signifies one's bare morality or rule-keeping, but more fully, morality and rule-keeping related to our active love for others who are in a position of need. All right, so back to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Back in 2 Corinthians uh, 9, nine, Paul is linking God's care for the poor with his righteousness. God's care for the poor is an expression of God's righteousness. So how does this understanding of righteousness then help us adjudicate between the prosperity teachers and the anti-prosperity teachers? Well, the prosperity teachers are right that Paul in this passage, is talking about sowing and reaping money. It's the whole context of this passage. And they are right to insist that Paul is saying that if we give money to God, God will give money back to us. But here's where the prosperity teachers go wrong. They teach that our giving increases our capacity to get. But that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is teaching that our giving increases our capacity to give. In verses 8 through 10, when Paul says that God will make all grace abound and that he will increase the harvest of our righteousness, he is referring to an increased capacity to minister to and care for others, an increased capacity to act with righteousness Towards those in need. So the harvest that's increased are not yachts and airplanes and mansions, but a harvest of less empty stomachs, less orphaned children in the streets, more resources directed towards those in need. So here's the single point for this second sermon. Giving does not increase our capacity to get, but our capacity to give. So if you're giving to get, just give it up. But if you give freely, sincerely, out of a heart of joy, you will find that God replenishes your storehouses so you can keep giving. He probably won't make you rich. That's not the promise here that you're going to get rich. But the more willing you are to be a conduit through which God distributes his money to those in need, the more likely you are to find that God keeps passing money through your conduit. But the important thing is that you see yourself as a conduit for God's money. Billy Graham once said, God will allow a lot of money to pass through your hands as long as, as, long as it doesn't stick. And I think that's a good Way Billy Graham is recognizing that like, we're conduits through which God's money passes into the lives of those in need. So don't give to get. But if God is calling you to give to a relief effort, don't be afraid that you're going to somehow outgive God. If God has put it on your heart to meet a financial need, then give and don't worry. Right. The way that we assess whether God is calling us to give isn't determined solely by how much money I have. Right. Well, God, if I gave that money away, I wouldn't have anything to take care of myself, so that can't be what you're asking of me. Right. You give as the Lord leads, and if he's really leading you to give, he will replenish the storehouses of your righteousness so you can continue to give to those in need. Listen, here's the thing. Right? All of us, we are just the poor children of God. And we stand as recipients of his righteousness, his philanthropy, and his care in our lives. St. Augustine once said, what do, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything that we have, we've received from God. He's taking care of us. And so we can act with righteousness and distribute our righteousness freely out into a needy world. As Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount, the nations who don't know the loving care of their Heavenly Father, who haven't experienced the righteous philanthropy of God in their own lives, they scurry around the world saying, What am I going to eat? What am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? But people, we are God's children. And our Father in heaven, He knows what we need. So let's be free of the anxieties and the fears that drive us to care for ourselves as our highest priority, as though we were orphaned children who had no one to take care of us. And let us live as Jesus taught us to live, seeking first God's kingdom. And his righteousness. And his righteousness. The righteousness that God has poured out on us richly in Christ. And that he longs to pour out onto the world through us. God loves us. He's taking care of us. He knows what our needs are. Doesn't want us to seek to meet all of our own needs as our highest priority. But to seek to meet the needs of others. He's taking care of. Let's trust Him to supply our needs as we supply needs for others. We're gonna, I'm going to close in prayer, and then we're going to sing a song. We've sung it here a lot of times. One of my favorite songs, God is for us. God is for us is the thing that we have to remember if we're going to enter into the world with a, a spirit of philanthropy. Right? It's because God is for us that I can be generous to the world around me. So pray with me, and then... Let's stand together, let's pray, and then we're going to sing. Father, thank you that you have given us your Son in Christ, that you are for us, that you see our needs, you know what our situation is, that you have promised to take care of us, and so we can just give freely to others, knowing that you will supply a seed to the sower, and you will increase the harvest of our righteousness. You will increase our capacity to give, God. So help us to focus on, on giving as you have given to us, Lord, following where you lead us, uh, giving uh, not out of guilt or obligation, but in complete confidence that you love us and you care for us and
0: you supply our needs in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.